In the early 1930s, the United States of America was going through a tough time. It was what they called the Great Depression. Now, there were other nations in Europe that were going through a similar situation, and many of them seemed to solve their problems by installing a fascist government ruled by a dictator. There were some in the U.S. who thought a similar action was necessary. Today I tell the story of the alleged plot to seize the White House in 1934 on the 182nd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee and Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. How is everybody doing out there? How's the weather? Here in Chicagoland, we went from complaining about the rain to complaining about the heat. It's been in the upper 90s lately. So today's story was suggested by Russell way back in November of 2017 on the Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. After doing the last two episodes on the Superman movies, I really wanted to pick something I knew nothing about. So this story was perfect and very interesting, so thanks, Russell. And it's a long one, so I'm not going to waste your time with my usual babbling. Let's get to it. It's the alleged attempted takeover of the government in 1934 by a group of powerful businessmen and politicians. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. In the 1920s, uh, Mussolini in the United States was very popular, not just among Italian-Americans, but among some reformers who thought of Mussolini as a kind of Italian Theodore Roosevelt, brought efficiency and vim and vigor to Italy. And there was curious interest in maybe bringing some features of Mussolini's regime, like the corporate state structure, to the United States. Most of the countries of Europe in the 1930s were being led by dictators or quasi-dictators. And veterans groups had, in almost every instance, installed those people in power. In January of 1932, about 20,000 United States veterans, mostly from World War I, traveled to Washington, D.C. to protest. It was the largest demonstration the nation's capital had ever seen. The men, along with their families, were there to protest the government's refusal to pay them their promised cash bonuses. It all began after the Great War ended. The soldiers, who fought so bravely and suffered so much, at war's end were given a thank you, $60, and a train ticket home. That was all. And the veterans thought they deserved more. Finally, the government came up with a compromise. It was called the World War Adjusted Compensation Act, or Bonus Act. It was passed on May 19, 1924. It awarded a bonus to each veteran based on their service in the United States Armed Forces between April 5, 1917 and July 1, 1919. They received an Adjusted Service Certificate, which guaranteed them $1 for each day served in the United States and $1.25 for each day served abroad. 
It set maximum payments at $500 for veterans who served statewide and $625 for a veteran who served overseas. The money would be given with interest after 20 years. For the average vet, this was about $1,000, which is about $14,000 in today's money. Not all agreed with this act. President Calvin Coolidge vetoed the bill, saying, Patriotism, bought and paid for, is not patriotism. Gee, President Coolidge, doesn't a president get paid for their service to their country? Oh well. His veto was overturned by Congress. But in the 1930s, the Great Depression crippled the country. The veterans, many now out of work, began to wonder why they had to wait 20 years for their money, because they needed it now. But to pay them, it would cost the government about $2.2 billion, more than half of the 1932 federal budget. That's what led 20,000 United States veterans to descend out of Washington, D.C., many of them with their family. They called themselves the Bonus Army. Most of the group camped in Hooterville, a swampy, muddy area in Washington. Men, women, and children lived in shelters they built from material dragged out of junk piles nearby. This included old lumber, packing boxes, and scrap tin covered with roofs of straw. Some lived in condemned buildings until they were removed by force, but they vowed to stay in Washington until they got their bonus. One man who spoke in support of the veterans was United States Marine Corps Major General Smedley Butler. General Butler had an impressive military career and was as tough as they came. He was a well-respected man who was brought up as a Quaker. He had a 34-year career in the Marines. He participated in military actions in the Philippines, China, in Central America, and the Caribbean during the Banana Wars. And of course, he fought in France in World War I. He was the type of man that, when given an order, he would salute and carry the order out to the fullest, without question. He received 16 medals, 5 for heroism. He was one of 19 men to receive the Medal of Honor twice. General Douglas MacArthur called Butler one of the leading great generals in American history. By the time of the Bonus Army, General Butler was retired and making his living as a professional speaker. As a civilian, he was now free to express himself on any subject he wished. In the summer of 1932, he traveled to Washington and spoke very passionately in support of the veterans. He told the crowd in his famous hoarse, raspy voice, if you don't hang together, you aren't worth a damn. And later he said, Who the hell has done all the bleeding for this country and the law and the Constitution but you fellas? They may call you tramps now, he yelled, but in 1917 they didn't call you bums. You are the best behaved group of men in this country today. I consider it an honor to be asked to speak to you. And after his speech, he stuck around to the early morning hours, listening sympathetically to all the veterans who wanted to talk to him about losing their jobs, how their families were in distress, and their old war wounds. He gave his speech just a couple of days before General Douglas MacArthur would use his troops to disperse the protesters. One day late in the afternoon, his cavalry, infantry, tanks, and machine guns pushed the Bonus Army out of Washington. More than 100 marchers were injured and two were shot and killed. Gas was used on women and children. The United States was going through a hard time, and it was not only the poor and unemployed who were worried about their future. Wealthy Americans were in a panic as well. 
Oh, they were still doing okay, but they were concerned about a devalued dollar and what that would do to their nest egg. This made it worse when the current president, Herbert Hoover, who was taking the heat for the Depression and the Bonus Army, was defeated by Democrat Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who promised the country a new deal. During the first month of his presidency, Roosevelt signed many laws in an attempt to end the Depression, and much of these laws sent the wealthy Wall Street elite into a panic. None so much, however, as taking the country off the gold standard. The gold standard was the system on which all paper money in the country was backed by gold kept by the government. This worried people as they thought that now that $1 paper money wasn't backed by $1 worth of gold, FDR could print as much money as needed, bringing down the value of money. Even FDR's first manager of the budget left office, saying going off the gold standard was the end of Western civilization. Many rational, intelligent people at the time thought the same thing. But here we are today, still off the gold standard, and we're doing okay. Another thing going on in the world at the time were dictatorships popping up in Europe. One of these was Benito Mussolini, who rose to power as dictator in Italy in 1925 with the help of corporate interests and a private militia composed mostly of disgruntled World War I veterans. To many Americans, his fascist regime was admired. People marveled at the way he turned things around, restoring Italy's industrial viability. This might, to today's sensibilities, sound crazy, knowing what we now know, but remember, even Hitler initially had fans in the U.S. Many, mostly those with vast fortunes, thought the current president didn't know what he was doing. There were those in the United States that thought a leader, such as Mussolini, was what this country needed. In July of 1933, Smedley Butler received a visit from two men. He saw them pull in front of his house in a chauffeur-driven limousine. The men were World War I veteran Gerald C. McGuire, a $100 a week bond salesman for Grayson Murphy and Company, and a member of the Connecticut American Legion, and Bill Doyle, who was a commander of the Massachusetts American Legion. McGuire, a large, sweaty man, did most of the talking. Butler was asked to appear at an American Legion convention in Chicago. He was told the two of them represented a coterie of influential legionnaires who were dissatisfied with the current leadership of the American Legion. They thought the leadership seemed indifferent to the needs of the rank-and-file veterans. They hoped having Butler speak would remove the current leaders. Butler wasn't unsympathetic to their cause, both because of his support of the veterans and the fact that he had always been critical of the organization's close ties with big business. But he turned the men down saying he didn't wish to get involved in American Legion politics. Also, Butler, though he didn't say anything, was suspicious of the men's real motives. McGuire and Doyle were disappointed and asked if they could meet with him again in a few weeks. Butler agreed. A month later, they returned. This time, they asked Butler if he could bring a couple hundred Legionnaires to Chicago. They'd be scattered around the audience to applaud and cheer at the right moments. They wouldn't calm down until Butler was able to perform his speech in front of the crowd. When Butler asked what kind of speech he was supposed to give, McGuire produced a page. It was the speech already written. 
The speech he was given was a plea to return to the gold standard. So when the veterans finally got their money, it would be money backed by gold, not, as they called it, rubber money or worthless paper. McGuire said the men he knew that were legionnaires wouldn't be able to afford a trip to Chicago. But he was told their expenses would all be paid. When asked for proof, McGuire produced two recent bank deposits, one for $42,000 and the other for $64,000. Now Butler was really suspicious. What poor veteran gets that kind of money? These two, he figured, must be representing somebody with great wealth. But again, Butler said no. McGuire, however, wasn't ready to give up. They would meet again. But before they would meet again, Butler, who knew nothing about the gold standard, thought he needed to do a little research to find out what it was all about. He found it was a major concern for the country's wealthiest citizens. Bankers worried that they would be paid back in their gold-backed loans with cheaper, ever-inflating paper money. To the wealthy, a break from the gold standard would destroy the nation's wealth and savings. McGuire met with Butler again, this time alone. Butler told him that he wouldn't even consider a trip to Chicago unless McGuire was willing to be candid and disclose the source of the funds that were behind it. Finally, after much prodding, McGuire gave in. He said that there were nine backers who were concerned about the veterans getting their bonuses. Butler knew that people who could afford such contributions were hardly the people who were in favor of a $2 billion bonus for veterans. McGuire told Butler that he was representing a group called the Committee for a Sound Dollar, a group with the goal of convincing the president to return to the gold standard. Butler also found out that the speech was written by John Davis, who had been the Democratic presidential candidate in 1924 and now was an attorney for the J.P. Morgan Company. While still remaining non-committal, Butler began trying to get as much information as he could from McGuire. He knew something more was going on, and he thought that he should make a report. The president should know what was going on. So he began his own private investigation. While Butler was visiting Newmark, New Jersey to do a talk, McGuire visited him in his hotel room. It was at this point Butler finally demanded to know more. He wanted to meet with the people who had the money. McGuire agreed. In September, Butler was visited in his home by Robert Sterling Clark, one of the group's primary backers. And as it turned out, Butler had commanded Sterling Clark in the United States Army in China during the Boxer Rebellion. Clark was known as the Millionaire Lieutenant because he had inherited a fortune from his grandfather, one of the founders of the Singer Sewing Machine Company. Butler told him that, frankly, he thought the speech he was being asked to read did not have anything to do with the veterans' bonuses, but was more like big business propaganda. Clark took a moment before finally opening up and letting the full plan be known. He thought that the popular butler could lead the veterans to make Congress return to the gold standard, and he was willing to spend half of his $30 million to protect the other $15 million. Like many rich people at the time, he was convinced that the way things were going, his money would soon be worthless. On August 22, 1934, three days after Germany had approved sole executive power to Adolf Hitler as Fuhrer of Nazi Germany, Butler met with McGuire in a hotel room in Philadelphia. McGuire had just returned from Europe. 
He told Butler of his trip, about his contact with Europe's paramilitary organizations, such as the Black Shirts of Italy and the Stormtroopers of Germany. He was really taken in with a French right-winged veterans organization called the Croix de Feu, which translates to Cross of Fire, a French organization composed of officers and non-commissioned officers. It was organized by wealthy manufacturers to beat and prevent worker strikes. Because one thing wealthy businessmen hated back then was organized labor. The Quad de Fuhrer had 500,000 members. Each was a leader of 10 others, so their voting strength was about 5 million men. Now McGuire unveiled his strange, shocking plan. He thought an army of 500,000 men could be created in the United States, and this group would be led by Butler. The bizarre scenario was that General Butler would lead a paramilitary veterans group, and they would force the president to create a new cabinet position for Butler called the Secretary of General Affairs, which would replace the Secretary of State. The presidency would now become a ceremonial job. He would have no real power. Butler would make all actual policy decisions. Historian and author Anne Cipriano Vernon said of the group, They knew that if Smedley Butler set out to seize the White House, nothing would stop him short of a bullet. What they didn't know was Smedley Butler would have stood in front of the White House defending it. It is thought these days that this idea was backed from people from companies like J.P. Morgan, General Motors, U.S. Steel, and DuPont. Butler pretended to be interested in this outrageous plan in order to find out who was in charge, the minds behind the scheme. McGuire would not divulge the names. But he did say a new high-profile organization would be announced in the press within a couple of weeks. The organization's purpose was to maintain and protect the Constitution of the United States. While not naming names, he said there will be some big names involved, including some high-profile Democrats. Soon after, there were announcements in the paper about a group called the American Liberty League. While they said they were concerned about protecting the Constitution, in reality, they were interested in protecting their interests from the policies of the current president. The members included some of the wealthiest Americans who supported ultra-right-winged causes. It included members of the DuPont family and the president of General Motors. Butler was convinced that these men might actually have the means to overthrow the government, and he looked for help, someone to get involved who confirmed what he already knew. He turned to American reporter, writer, and anti-war activist Paul Comley French to investigate. Butler introduced French, who faked anti-Roosevelt sympathies, to McGuire. McGuire admitted everything to French, including the fact he believed the United States would be better off with a fascist government to save the country from communism. McGuire told him that they wanted to make Roosevelt a figurehead, just like Mussolini did with the King of Italy. French told reporters later that McGuire said, We need a fascist government in this country to save the nation from the communists who want to tear it down and wreck all we have built in America. The only men who have the patriotism to do this are the soldiers, and Smedley Butler is the ideal leader. He could organize a million men overnight. Soon, rumors of the group's ideas were circulating in Washington, and Butler knew it was time to tell his story. It was then Butler gave a now-famous press conference to explain everything to the public. I appeared before the Congressional Committee 
the highest representation of the American people under subpoena to tell what I knew of activities, which I believe might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. The plan as outlined to me was to form an organization of veterans, to use as a bluff or as a club at least, to intimidate the government and break down our democratic institutions. The upshot of the whole thing was that I was supposed to lead an organization of 500,000 men, which would be able to take over the functions of government. When the committee's hearings began on November 20, 1934, Butler testified that, to be perfectly fair to Mr. McGuire, he didn't seem bloodthirsty. He felt that such a show of force in Washington would probably result in a peaceful overthrow of the government. Butler and French told everything, including the names involved. Names brought into question were people like Grayson M.P. Murphy, former New York governor, 1928 Democratic presidential nominee Al Smith, as well as Prescott Bush, a banker, a future Connecticut senator, and father to George H.W. Bush and grandfather to George W. Bush. Of course, McGuire denied everything. He claimed he never talked about or was interested in the fascist governments of Europe, even though there were letters brought out into evidence that said otherwise. McGuire said, It's a joke, a publicity stunt. I know nothing about it. The matter is made up out of whole cloth. I deny the story completely. But here's the thing. Besides those three, no one else was ever called to testify. In the press, the American Liberty League questioned Smedley Butler's sanity. But of course, one could ask, if Butler was mentally unstable, what about French? He told the same story. But the committee believed Butler, saying in its final report, McGuire denied these allegations under oath, but your committee was able to verify all the pertinent statements made by General Butler, with the exception of the direct statement suggesting the creation of the organization. When the final report was published, all the names given by Butler and French were removed. In fact, it seemed the whole conspiracy was quickly swept under the table. It was even downplayed in the press. The New York Times wrote, The whole story sounds like a gigantic hoax. It does not merit serious discussion. The reason why the whole conspiracy was quickly downplayed and forgotten about might have come from orders from the White House itself. You see, FDR was a smart man, and back in those days, the people with political power were a small, tight group, and they would rather deal with their problems amongst themselves rather than having it go through the courts. Sort of like the mafia, right? And besides, FDR needed some of those people who were involved to get his New Deal programs passed. It was sort of like, I'll forget about this if you um, ease off on your opposition to some of my proposals. But if all this is true, and I will admit some people even question that today, then General Butler might have saved the United States from becoming a fascist government. And if that had happened... Who knows? We might have aligned ourselves with the people we ended up fighting in the Second World War, and that might have changed everything. To conservatives in general, and certainly to business people in particular, Roosevelt appeared as a traitor to his class. Could a plot to create a fascist state in the U.S. have succeeded? Considering the times and the money behind it and the power of the men behind it, they would definitely have been successful. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. 
Now I can light an old gold and listen to The Sad Sack. A little bit before I go. First of all, the reported meetings between Butler and McGuire were all according to Butler. There was no actual evidence besides his and French's word. As far as Butler, he had left the army due to frustrations, as he thought the army was being used to protect overseas business. He said, There are only two things we should fight for. One is the defense of our homes, and the other is the Bill of Rights. War is just a racket. I believe in adequate defense at the coastline and nothing else. In fact, he wrote a book called War is a Racket. When World War II was heating up, he thought the U.S. should stay out of it. The military should stay in the U.S. and only be used to protect the borders. He died on June 21, 1940, at the age of 58. Who knows if he would have changed his mind if he was still alive when Pearl Harbor was attacked. Gerald C. McGuire died in March of 1935 from pneumonia. This was right after the hearings had ended. Doctors said the accusations against McGuire had led to his weakened conditions and collapse, which led to pneumonia. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You know, we at Psycon could use your help financing this network. Why don't you be one of the good people by visiting us at Psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And a sincere thank you to everybody who already supports the show. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find some amazing podcasts at Psycon.fm. You know, you can follow me on Twitter. My name is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page I would love you to join. And your story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin to help financially, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars. That really helps me out. And remember, all the links to the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Sycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 35 years for being my wife of 35 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all of you who repost this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with, I don't know, something. Bye. Coffee, 
coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee or coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee. coffee.